Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation. All the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of Cha Dao. This will be the focus of this podcast, developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine, Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, you're welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together. Hi there, and welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. I'm Morgan. And I'm Janos. We are glad to once again be sitting down with Wude to talk about, to me personally, one of the most interesting topics, Zen and tea. This is the second time we discussed this topic, and we very much encourage you to listen to the earlier episode titled Zen and Tea also, as this is a vast topic that cannot be exhausted in a single podcast episode, but can be approached from different angles. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Wuda. Mm, good to be here. First, um, I would like to discuss the Chinese character for Zen, which is made up of two radicals, to manifest and simplicity, uh, which is interesting to me because, as you have mentioned in previous episodes, the word Chan comes from the Sanskrit dhyana um, that could be summarized as meditative mind. What is the role of uh, simplicity in Zen practice? Well, I think I think that uh, you know always when we get into the philosophy of Zen, you run the danger of of uh, running away from from the present moment and from the mind and the meditative mind that is the foundation of Zen uh, in thinking discursively or in conversations like this. But uh, oftentimes, especially in the modern world. We assume that spiritual work is some kind of um, icing that we put on top of experience, so that experience becomes like some kind of super experience, so that like it's it's not just uh, chopping spring onions; it's chopping spring onions plus heightened awareness and super sense and and you know extreme uh, mental clarity or something like this. Mm. And uh, Zen. You know, in Zen we practice shinkan, which is, you know, this is how we meditate, this is how we do all activities, and shinkan means like just doing. So the simplicity in Zen is just chopping the spring onions. So certainly when we stand back from the act of, of, of chopping spring onions with, with shinkan, the spring onions are then chopped with the whole of the being. But this isn't chopping plus then insert some kind of foo-foo concept of like awareness or presence or some other spiritual catchphrase. This is chopping onions without remainder. 
So it's more akin to the sensations and emotions that one experiences as a small child. When you're little, you know, when a little child is angry, they hate you with every cell in their body. And when they love you, the, the love is just beaming out of every cell in, in their body. So they do things completely, which is why they're so good at role playing. Like you be the sick person, I'll be the nurse. And the role playing can even result in, in real psychological discomfort sometimes if they role play and get, you know, argue or whatever, because they're, they're so fully immersed in what they do. So it's closer to that. I wouldn't, you know, that's just an analogy. But but the point is that the simplicity in in practice in Zen um, is is a, is about living wholly and without remainder. So it's not like adding some additional thing onto it. It's, there's not an adding of something. It's not doing one's activities while in some super state. It's doing the activities wholly and completely with the whole of yourself unified. So that you're not thinking about f your Facebooks while you chop spring onions, right? So there's chopping of spring onions and it's done with the whole of the being. So that's where the simplicity comes in, in terms of training. And then in terms of, uh, in terms of like philosophy, um, the simplicity of Zen would be akin to poverty. The teachings of poverty, which are common to both Christianity and Buddhism, which isn't a, a, a lack of of, uh, of material property, though though outwardly it might manifest like that, so it might look Spartan from the outside. It's possible, but not necessary, because it's a psychological state. So it has nothing to do with the proximity of of certain material goods. And whether they are philosophically and legally mine, nothing, nothing belongs to me other than on some kind of imaginary level, some kind of legal construct of property, or you know, these are these things are intersubjective. They're not fully subjective, but they're you know, sh we we have shared beliefs about what property means, and then we've our society functions based on those beliefs, but. Uh, Poverty, as taught by Jesus and the Buddha, is more about two things. It's about a humbleness of, of lifestyle and of spirit and a, a conscious, willful, active uh, relinquishment of worldly desire. So a renunciation of worldly desire, active renunciation of worldly desire, not natural, but active renunciation of worldly desire and uh, humbleness of spirit. This is what poverty is. Right, and so that would be the second. That would be the philosophical simplicity, and then finally we have, of course, aesthetic simplicity because that is a manifestation of living beauty, and so then we get into you know the aesthetic of of uh, shibusa, which is the the austere, the the reticent, the um, restrained, uh, unadorned aesthetic. Which uh, you know, help, help, which is a way of of living and and designing your space and your clothes and your and your you know all the outer aspects of your life. So simplicity, I guess, would be these three aspects. You have the um, practical simplicity, which is in shinkan, doing things wholly and completely, and and just doing them, 
right? Just doing them without any philosophical or experiential layers added on top. And then philosophically, simplicity would be this poverty, which is um, forsaking worldly desires and cultivating humbleness of spirit. And then uh, aesthetically, simplicity would be the aesthetic of Shibusa, which is like a, a austere kind of um, restrained, unadorned, wabi kind of kind of uh, lifestyle in terms of clothes and and architecture and etc. So how does tea fit into this simple life? Well, it fits into all three of these uh, aspects of of it because you know on the in the first um, you know tea is obviously a, a moving kind of mindfulness, so it's a training in in just doing, and it's done for its own sake. So oftentimes when people start out in tea, when they first come to their first ceremonies, they are they are instigated away from the bowl. So tea becomes some kind of like shamanic journey so that you're drinking tea and then from the bowls of tea you are going out into the universe, into your visions and imaginations and, and um, you know, feeling your body in different ways and seeing the world in different ways. But the more you practice, the more that tea becomes about, rather than going from the bowl out into the universe, bringing the universe down into the bowl. So it becomes about a way of taking one's uh, worldview and uh, connection to the world and distilling it into the moment. And so that that is a, is a powerful practice. And then, of course, tea is also teaching us to... Uh, to, to love the, the ordinary, to find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Right? There's old Zen saying, right, there's nothing more uncommon than seeing the uncommon in the common. And modern humans have become so commonplace that they need the extremely uh, rare and uncommon in order to experience the uncommon. But the, to find the, the glory and beauty and reverence and miracle that is in the most ordinary of things... Um, is a huge part of, of living the beauty of Zen. And that's also a huge part of what tea is about. And then, of course, tea, the aesthetic of tea is, is always uh, simple and austere and shibusa and uh, makes everything living and functional. Even artworks that don't ordinarily have a function, like a vase or a scroll, when they're brought into the tea room, they, they are then given living function. They have a purpose and you know and they become alive so it's about living and manifesting that beauty and completely being it and that's that's ts religion and um that's where the the roads of zen and, and tea you know become one flavor where they become one is in in all those meeting points and more you know there's unsaid things as well um zen's first foundation is a transmission between teacher and student that is non-verbal and uh, one of the ways that that's always been um, achieved is this through the, the the tea that is served back and forth between teachers and students so historically tea and zen have always had this undeniable bond you can trace it all the way back to prior to the tang dynasty when the classic of tea was published lu yu himself was a buddhist practitioner and for this reason, so many elements of tea ceremony have evolved from Zen. Can you talk about some of the early 
ancient and an uh, initial influence one has had on the other. Yeah, or but early on the you know the Zen monks and nuns were the, the amongst the first humans to domesticate tea, if not the first, and it was um, it was through them that the mainstream was introduced to this tea. But prior to that time, it was local. It was more in in certain regions in China. It wasn't like all throughout the kingdom, and it wasn't certainly popular. It was through the monastery that the mainstream was introduced to it. So. Every tea lineage, every exploration of tea and its history has to pass through Zen, the house of Zen. There's no studying of the history of tea or, or tracing the, any tea lineage without, without passing through the house of Zen. And um, one of the things that um, makes a lot of um, historical works on tea inadequate for me is when the is that the 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 person writing has no personal experience of the things that they're writing about which to me is like a, 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 a someone writing an, an essay on ethics that they themselves do not um, adhere to in their actions adhere to in their actions doesn't mean perfect right we can't hold anyone up to some kind of to the perfection of their own ethical standards the more we live by vow, the more we fall short of our vows and have to repent. But so it's not about, is that person a perfect example of their ethic philosophy? But, but are they trying to, are they trying their best to adhere to that ethical philosophy? Are they working their best to adhere to that ethical philosophy and genuinely repenting when they fall short? Right. If so, it, and if they if they are, then I feel like they're qualified to write such an ethical essay. But right, we we find it um, you know two faced for someone. It's it's political for someone to write an ethical essay about what human behavior should look like when they themselves you know don't don't follow it. And uh, similarly, I, I think like it's. You know, it, it, that's what happens when you have people write the history of Zen who have never done Zen practice, right? And they're trying to look at it from the outside. To some extent, such works can um, provide some insight in the sense that, like, that person, since they've never practiced it, they are also maybe more unbiased in, with regards to the history, and so they can be a little bit more cold and objective maybe. But for the most part, it just is just going to be re, it's just going to reflect a, a lack of understanding of the topic that they're that they're they're attempting to discuss. And so I think you know obviously to understand Zen you have to practice it, and uh, once you've practiced it, then then a lot of this this stuff makes sense. And and so um, the history you know is uh, of the two is very. Uh, connected on every level philosophically through stories and uh, teachings practically through um, even the rules of conduct for most monasteries included tea and tea ceremony um, to to farming so they you know tea for them didn't just mean ceremony they were also farming and processing tea so that was also a part of their life and essentially their livelihood because Zen monasteries were often self-sufficient not always. Sometimes they were supported by donors or the, even the government, but um, some of them were self-sufficient. 
So it would have been in all areas of their life. And it was through that, through the them that the mainstream was introduced to tea for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, Buddhists are not supposed to take intoxicants, so alcohol isn't a viable beverage for sharing between uh, monks and lay people. Though, of course, that did happen. People don't follow that precept or don't believe in it or or fall short of it. Uh, but but tea was a much better um, beverage for for you know or social lubricant for connecting monks and nuns and lay people. Um, and then there's also all of its meditative qualities. And then there's the actual ceremonial significance. And then there's the like mindfulness emotion. So in Zen, tea is one of the five essential mindfulness practices, which are, of course, Zazen, seated meditation, then walking meditation, tea, um, sitting in power places in nature like waterfalls or forests. And then uh, the fifth one's kind of funny. It's feeding fish. <laughs> so you're saying traditionally monks and monasteries used tea as an ally or made it an integral part of their practice. Can you share some of the ways in which tea continues to support them even today? I, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know in various lineages how much tea plays a role in, in the, um, in the traditions, various Zen traditions of Japan and Korea and China. I think each, each, uh, Lineage has its own connection to tea, and they've either lost that completely. A lot of monks nowadays in modern world are drinking coffee, mm-hmm. um, you know. So they've lost the ceremonial significance and the practice. And uh, if you're just drinking the, it as a like a beverage or tonic to keep awake, then you know coffee does that just as well. Or I don't know, you know, in, if you're try- just if the only uh, criteria you're using is just like how awake it, the beverage makes you feel. Coffee might even be better for you. Um, <laughs> Though I think tea, you know, fulfills that better because it keeps you calm. But traditionally, it was associated with the, the, it was the like, you know, awakening. It's it's in Zen. The origin story of tea is that the the first patriarch of of Zen in China, he's the twenty eighth patriarch altogether. But he's the first one to come to China was Bodhidharma, and the story is that he was in his you know nine year meditation retreat, and he was. Uh, you know, staring at a wall and during, you know, a few years in, he started to get a little sleepy and started bobbing. And he's like, this, you know, an emblem of, of what we call aditan, which means like real strong determination. So he's a great like leonine force of, of like that determination that's required to meditate. And uh, so the story is he tore off his own eyelids and flung them and, and where they landed a, a tea bush grew. And so tea in Buddhism is sometimes called Bodhidharma's eyelids or the eyes of awakening. Um, so, um, you know, and you can see still like in Japan, Daruma dolls that don't have any eyelids because they're, they've been taken off and become tea. So pictures, you know, images of, of Bodhidharma without his eyelids, um, which, you know, seems kind of grotesque. There's a lot of Zen stories that on the, if you take them at a surface level, they're, they're kind of gross like that. But um, the, the essence of it is that they, this this was a medicine of awakening and not just in a like physical sense of like not sleeping I'm meditating so i need to not sleep like you know that reducing it to some kind of um, chemical material physical effect um, which is discordant with the worldview of 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 chinese people up until the very very modern age they didn't see, they didn't view the world as a conglomerate of stuff the way that we tend to in the modern 
uh, Western worldview of the last few hundred years. So um, they wouldn't have thought of like tea as a substance that comes into the substance of my body, and then this chemical caffeine comes in and makes keeps me awake. They didn't have any of these concepts. So the you know by awakening, there's more um, implied than just physically staying awake and not sleeping. But also the awakening of enlightenment. The, the Buddha, the the word, the name, the Buddha. The Buddha is a title. It's not his name. He also is not the only Buddha. There's been several Buddhas. The most current Buddha in in the Buddhist mythology is, is Siddhartha Gautama, and uh, the, but the term Buddha means awakened one. So the idea of awakening from sleep is is very important to Buddhism, and not used lightly, and certainly not used just in terms of like. You know, waking up in the morning. Um, so by calling it the 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 eyes, which are also very important metaphors all throughout Buddhism of seeing, um, as they are in a lot of traditions. And so, um, and so there's a lot there about um, not just not sleeping and being able to meditate for long hours, but also um, seeing more clearly, being more awake. And um, you know, in Zen, seeing more clearly means. Um, what we call kenjo, which means seeing reality without, per, uh, you know, with with without personal or cultural fabrications. Which doesn't mean that like we've turned the personal or cultural fabrications off, as though there was a switch to do that in our mind, but that we recognize their limitations and are able to see through them, or still them. At times, it's it's one or the other or both. Um, you can still those forces in you, or you can see through them to reality itself and so there's all of those metaphors are also bound up in the um in the energy and and power of tea and not just in the beverage itself but in the act of preparing and 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 drinking it which is ceremonial so in the ceremony itself such energy is already there before the first uh, sip touches your lips even so is Zen practice essential to tea? Um, you know that's a this is it's a challenging question because um, if we take if we take Zen to mean Zen Buddhism and then then like a perf a certain set of beliefs or dogmas or doctrines or ways of dressing or ways of acting and thinking, then certainly no. But I think that that all of that is also not essential for Zen. Uh, there's an old Zen saying in Chinese, which is Chan Chou Wei, which means to stink of Zen, to have the odor of Zen, which means to have a lot of Zen on your clothes and in your behavior and in your like language and philosophy and things, but not in your soul and your spirit, not in your essence, not manifested from the deepest parts of you, not your own wisdom, right? Which is why, you know, in, in my lineage, the you know, my teacher and his teacher very strongly emphasized the ability to um, express Zen um, without the confinements of traditional language. So, in other in other words, you know, one of the examples that my teacher used to give was that uh, uh, someone who's researching physics that can't explain their research to a layman in layman's terms hasn't yet fully understood all the implications of their research. So in other words, you know, you should be able to take Zen wisdom and express it in any language. 
Um, and my teacher, whenever he taught in English, he he loved to quote from the Bible. He had all kinds of biblical quotes, and he and he loved to like say them in English. Loved to like you know use the word God and and you know speak in in terms to, when he was speaking to Western people in particular in English. Um, and he would often speak about you know how we can't as Westerners we can't just like ape Japanese people. We have to make Zen our own. And that he would also he also said the Bible is Buddha Dharma, and, you know Buddha Dharma means truth, and so truth is is there in all uh, lineages, and we can listen. So you know part of the reason that T and Z have such a strong relationship is because the first two foundations of Zen are are uh, nonverbal transmission between teacher and student, and then no doctrine, no dogma, no scripture. The third and fourth are it leads to the heart of a person and reveals the truth of nature as it is. So while Zen Buddhism and all of its philosophies and scriptures and uh, um, robes and temples and folklore and practices and stuff, all of that can be a basket that helps transmit the mind of Zen. It can also get in the way. And Zen masters have known that since the beginning, which is why they've always also cultivated a little bit of irreverence, mm. like poking at their own tradition to make sure that everybody knows that this is not it, that this thing we call Zen Buddhism is not Zen, mm. and don't get stuck in it. And then at the same time, also cultivating other nonverbal methods to express that mind, like archery, calligraphy, martial arts, um, and, and above all else, tea above all those T. And so um, if you're saying, you know, is the is the folklore and altars and chanting and robes and and uh, Zen centers and 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 all and philosophy and books and scriptures and all that stuff and beliefs and all of that, is all of that necessary for tea? Absolutely not. There's all kinds of tea that exists outside that sphere. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> but again, all of that is not necessary for Zen either. Um, you know, any my teacher used to say, anytime you think you've grasped Zen, you open your hand and there's nothing there. It's like trying to catch the wind. Mm. Right? Anytime you think you understand Zen, open your hand and look, and there's nothing in there. Mm. So you can't use the rational mind to get at that mind either. And uh, which is why tea is, is good because tea is not rational. It's done for its own sake. It doesn't make sense. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not a. It's not a. It's not conceptual. It's a. It's a. It's something that's done for its own sake. So, you know, the the question's kind of, um, kind of challenging. I think to truly understand tea, I would I would say that like you know. Um, Yanagi or like the the book of tea and, and many other English books that are coming from the Zen world I would say that to really understand tea one has to live it as religion for sure and that if one is doing that and one penetrates to the communion with the objects and the ceremony and then the liquor itself and cultivates true um true discernment of this of this beautiful plant and of its liquor and of the effects of that on the body and even of quality and how to prepare quality tea and what that means 
and all of the, that, the implications that come with um, becoming skilled in tea uh, preparation, any degree of mastery, that such a person would uh, embody the mind of Zen, the truth of Zen, and that if you looked at their lifestyle, you'd say, oh, they're Zen. Even if they had never heard the word Zen or the word Buddhism, um, they would, you know. A really good example of this is my my Gong Fu tea teacher, Master Lin. And I wrote about this in an article where I wrote a biography of him. I forget which issue. It's a couple years ago. If you go back two, three years, there's an issue about him. And um, and I, I wrote the article about his life. And in there, you know, I wrote, he he's a Taoist. So his his philosophy, if you poke him, like what what his worldview is, is very much Taoist. And his practices are also very much Taoist. But um, he's as Zen as my Zen master in Japan. Right? And he embodies all of the qualities that that make a good Zen teacher. And his wisdom, you know, is very in, in accordance with, with Zen. As, as, you know, Taoism is also, you know, one, a very limited perspective on the syncretism that created Zen, because Zen is a, is a form of Buddhism that you know, came from India to China, and, and philosophies and religions don't just take over, they blend with what's already there. And so a, a, a limited, um, you know, over-reductionistic way of looking at it would be to say that Zen is the baby of Buddhism and Taoism. Hmm. So there's certainly a lot of Taoism in Zen, and Zen practitioners are, uh, you know, they like to use the word Tao. And, and, and so there's already a kind of similarity, but, um, you know, he, he wouldn't say he's Zen, and uh, occasionally he uses a Zen story. I mean, he's familiar with it. He's a Chinese person, so he's certainly familiar with it, but... Um, he wouldn't call himself a Buddhist and he doesn't go to the temple and he doesn't like chant sutras and he doesn't, you know, um, anything like that. So there's, you know, there's an indirect way to penetrate the mind that is Zen and that is through some medium and tea works as well as a gata or a mantra, um, you know, or archery or whatever. So um, he certainly has penetrated that mind. And I would say that any kind of mastery of tea on any level, true mastery of tea on any level, would re require that mind and an understanding of that mind. Hmm. And also any kind of tea lineage would have to, at some point, like at least bow to and pay reverence to the, to the, to its own um, history and and connection to Zen, which you know certainly is there for Mastelin who understands very deeply the history of tea and understands, you know, he's, he's studied it more than anyone I know. And so certainly is aware of and respectful of the, of the relationship it has to that. So that kind of respect is there, but you know, also he embodies Zen and maybe that's more Zen again, where you get into the Chan Chan way, the ones who stink of Zen, like just wear the robes, but don't have it in their essence. Better to have it in your essence and not wear the clothes than wear the clothes and have no essence. Mm. Mm. Which is like akin to tea. Like what, what, that's basically what I'm saying is like someone who achieves mastery in tea on a real level will, it will have the characteristics of true Zen, not really, not the religious trappings of piety or, or the outer trappings of clothing or belief systems or whatever, but they will embody very much what Zen is about at its core. And if they don't, 
then also tease something that they wear or that their relationship to is superficial or financial or as a commodity or beverage or hobby or whatever. Mm. And nothing wrong with that. I just don't, I, I personally don't think that's that, that person then has really uh, developed mastery or penetrated into the essence of that, of that practice if it hasn't reached that level. You know, that's a, it's a bit like, that's a bit like, um, you know, would you say that, that let's say we have a, a silly friend, right, named Mo, and Mo's been married to his wife for, for 30 years, and you ask him, like, what do you love about your li- wife? And he, like, you know, it's like, I, I love her boobs, <laughs> you know? Do you see? Would you say that Mo like really understands his wife <laughs> or that not. he's like like that he's gotten in deep connection with her over those 30 years it seems like he's like you know he he has he doesn't even you know met her as a person like is that it like mm. some aspect of her physical form do you see what i mean so if somebody's been brewing tea even for a long time 20 years and you say like what do you love about tea well oh it's delicious or like it and they're still on some superficial level and it's not reached into their life and changed the way that they walk and breathe and and see the world, and um, you know. Then I'd say that they ha- they're they're they haven't. There's just wearing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it hasn't yet gone inside. Mm-hmm. And if it has gone inside, then it it will have it will have it, it will have implications that uh, that one could very easily call Zen. Mm. So that's a big challenging question. But I would say all of the things that on the surface we we consider to be Zen, certain books and aesthetic and uh, religious practices and beliefs are not necessary for tea um, and can even get in the way of tea. But those things are not necessary for Zen and can even get in the way of Zen. <laughs> right. So. Hmm. What about being a guest? How does cultivating a Zen practice um, or this mind that you speak of um, help you become an ideal, more present guest? Well, a charging that it's cultivating tea uh, you know, as you cultivate the how to be a host, how to serve tea, then you cultivate how to be a guest. Most people go backwards, right? Because they're 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 ambitious, and it's about them. Mm-hmm. So they learn tea, and immediately it's like, how do I use this to promote my life financially? They start. They want to start a tea business. That's very common in the West because the way that we're raised in this um, romanticized consumerism. Where it's like, you know, we just like the way to live more is experience more. More trips, more (laughs) hikes, more products. There's a product for everything. There's an experience for everything. Go to Paris. Have a, you know, that that, that, the the one who's living is the one who eats lots of cuisines and has lots of things in their house. I just read an article that said like the average American in their life will will own... uh, Several dozen million products hmm. will have passed through their life if you include like all their foodstuffs and everything. Wow! And then, so, like all this experience is is available and uh, and rich and you know, remember in in Buddhism we're pra- we're practicing simplicity, which is poverty, which is kind of renounce, renouncing that I- whole idea of, or philosophy of romanticizing um, the collection of material goods or experiences hmm. that that's really going to do anything to fulfill you is an illusion um so in you know in zen we are 
we're already cultivating that kind of that kind of return and simplicity and and a celebration of what's simple and ordinary and um and not so lost in the in in that in that great exploration and so um when people start out you know we're just like we're a lot of western people are conditioned to like if you love something then how do you cash in on it mm -hmm. that's like the next immediate thought is to like turn it into a business which is sad because then a lot of people lose their love for that thing because once you make it a business it's not as fun anymore and you lose the joy uh, for it not always some people are able to manage a business and and also a love and keep their passion so it is possible it's not black and white but that's the kind of thing but even if they don't go that road it's more like you know how do i go out in public and start serving tea and mm -hmm. like put myself out there how do i make it about me and uh really in order to really the, the problem with that is that then you immediately graduate to giver and the medicine hasn't fully penetrated you and because the medicine hasn't fully penetrated you you don't really have anything to give mm -hmm. it's like you know trying to become a teacher after you've gone only to the second grade you don't you only have you only have so second grade material to teach to other people you don't have a depth so it's really helpful for people starting out in tea to spend a few years and mm. receive and cultivate how to be a guest oh. and then when you've cultivated how to be a guest you will understand how to be a host and when you understand how to be a host then you even more deeply understand how to be a guest because you've been there and you know what's needed and so you can you can like you know but the the you know tea is an aimless activity it is without aim that's what part of what makes it zen but uh, for the purpose of conversation, since ancient times, the aim of tea has been guest and host as one. Mm. So making guest and host one. And that's pr incredibly profound because actually that idea transcends tea. Um, the idea, you know, in Zen, guest and host represent uh, subject and object. So this is about, you know, re uh, living, f you know, living from a different perspective than the constant division of the world into self and not self which is an illusion it's not real there is not a, a separation actually of self from the world i am the world uh, physically mentally all of it the way that i think is mostly the product of my cultural upbringing my my physical body is the product of the evolution of uh, you know of life on this earth and beyond that the evolution of these atoms from a star into planets into into living matter so uh you know living that living that way living that uh, away from that pers that constant division of the world into self and not self which is the primary f uh, steering mechanism of most modern humans and our culture uh reinforces that western culture reinforces that a child grows up with their own bedroom hmm. right and they're and they sometimes can even lock the door depending on the household and the parents rules but there's a door usually and they can close it and they have their own space and they can decorate it how they want they can put posters up they can and our whole society you know teaches the, the teaches and celebrates the individual so like you know kids that are picked on are taught to ignore those bullies only you know your true worth and there's some truth in all of that that kind of philosophy but you know that that just creates this psychology of constantly dividing the world into self and not self, which is um, inimical and, and and an obstacle to to the mind of Zen. 
So subject, guest and host becoming one is the same as like subject and object is as, as being allowing the the environment to participate in our consciousness, mm. as opposed to seeing the self as a separate entity that travels through the environment. Allowing the environment to participate in your consciousness, right? This is an important part of Zen, and that has to be on the real level of of the way that we. You know, interpret sensory data and and move through the world on a moment-to-moment basis not some philosophy that we believe in so um so making guests and hosts one is really powerful and deep and then that it's also practical mm-hmm. in the sense that like the aim of a ceremony is to make is that we all participate in one activity which is so needed in this modern era right where you know usually humans get together and someone's looking at their phone and the other person's facebooking and the other person's thinking about something that has nothing to do with what's going on and people are together physically but they're not together mentally and it's hard to get humans together doing one shared activity so that's a, one of the beauties of a ceremony is getting you know people together sharing um, sharing in one space one activity and so that's another way in which guest and host are one that's a little bit more practical but this goes very deep, yeah. And so they, you know, again, aim is a is only a, um, just a just a provisional word here that we're using just for the sake of this conversation. Realty is aimless, but um, so the aim of the guest is to become one with the host, and the aim of the host is to become one with the guest, and, and both become one with the occasion, with the ceremony, and and live the beauty. So that's the you know. That's the gist of that. And and to get there, really, it's so helpful if in the beginning you cultivate humbleness and, and reverence for, for your lineage, for the practice, right? And without a lineage, you're unfounded. Tease just consumerism then. It's really hard to penetrate the spiritual depths without a teacher who had a teacher who had a teacher, mm. um, whoever that is. Like on your own, I'll figure it out. It's not going to work. Because there's there's too much of the energy is nonverbal, so you can't watch internet videos and figure it out. What you can get from internet videos is either data about tea, but data about tea is not tea. The map is not the train. So you could collect information and data by reading Golatia by watching videos, and you can also get the form, but you can't have the essence. Right? If you enslave a person, if you imprison a person, you can have their body, but you can't have their soul. In other words, something like that. You you can't you you can't you can't get there with just the form. There's all kinds of energy that's very difficult to describe. It's like trying to describe the taste of an apple to someone that's not tasted it. If you haven't felt that energy, then it's hard to talk about. It seems something to to someone who hasn't felt it. It seems something foo foo, or something that I believe in but don't experience. But it's actually fundamental to to experience. And, and so you need that reverence and that lineage and the learning that comes not just from um, reading and copying, but comes from some kind of essence that's transmitted through like apprenticeship, through being around it, being around it, being in it. I mean, you two know you live here in a tea center, <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? You're immersed in it and you breathe it and feel it. And it's just a part of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, some, you know, I feel, you can feel it sometimes you just walk downstairs in some volunteer who's staying here is in the kitchen preparing tea mm-hmm. and you're like you you all of a sudden are like Woof, this is the tea center like mm-hmm. this is going on everywhere mm-hmm. you see what i mean and so there's a there's a there's that all of that and then 
you know, just the humbleness of, of also that, you know, tea ceremonies are about tea, not about me. Mm-hmm. And so I have to learn how to get out of the way and let the tea flow through me because it's not me. You know, sometimes I go to places around the world and some people have the same teas that I bring with me because they're Global Tea Up members. And I get to a place and I prepare the tea and they'll come up afterwards and be like, wow, woo, you make the tea so much better than me. And they think that has to do with me. They think it's about Wuda, but it's not. I'm just a dude from Ohio. I don't have any special talents that you don't have. I've practiced more maybe, but it's not really about that. Not in a ceremonial setting. Um, maybe in a making gongfu tea, I could make something finer, but that wouldn't that would it wouldn't have more juju just because it tastes finer. There's a lot of people that have a lot of skill and can make craft really nice tea, but it still doesn't have that juju. The juju comes from my lineage and from the method itself and the ceremonial significance that is embodied and manifest in that form. The spirit in the form, not just the form, but the spirit and the form together. And, uh, you know, also it comes in the training that I have of getting out of the way, mm. which is a, the most important part of the training, which is getting out of the way, which is why it's it's helpful to not make it about you, to cultivate reverence and to, you know, be a guest for as long as possible, especially when you're starting out, and receive as you got to learn to drink tea before you can make tea for others. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. I love the saying, the way is easy for the one with no preferences. Uh, our expectations about the way things should be often get in the way of our ability to be fully in the world, present and awake. And um, you mentioned tea being an aimless activity. I'm interested in unpacking that a little bit. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's that's a it's powerful and also like really delicate. It's a really delicate flower because there's a really deep and profound relationship between um, freedom and form, and they're they they're really really deep and profound, and um, it's easy to go off balance in one or the other. We were just talking about like the chancho way, the stinkiness of like having the form but not having the spirit behind it, right? But it goes the other way too. It's often Western to like immediately want freedom without any form and have like a, a you know, anti-authority, you know, being, a, we're so individualistic and raised such that we're, we're against authority, we're against form. And so we want to go right for the freedom, but freedom without any form is chaos. There's, then there's, it's just chaos. But at the same time, if, if, if you're stuck in the form and you can't transcend it in the moment, right? Then, then also, the spirit is lost, and you're not connected. Like you said, you're not. Con- you have an aim, and you're not connected. To- your aim is to do the form properly, mm-hmm. and you're not really connected to the moment. Then you're not really shinkan. You're not really just doing. You're doing plus the form on top of it. But how do you get to that place without training, right? So they asked one of the greatest ballerinas of all time, you know, how do you perform so well? And her answer was, you know, when I'm on stage, there's no music and there's no me, there's only dance. And I'd say that's incredibly free, right? But to get to that place, she has probably like, well, first of all, she has lineage, what we talked about earlier. She has a teacher who has a teacher who has a teacher, like it goes back in ballet a long time. And all the evolution and memory and and wisdom of how to train to be a ballet dancer, of how to think like a ballet dancer, how to live like a ballet dancer, what to eat, how to see the world, et cetera, et cetera, how to hear the music, 
all of that was passed on to her from her teachers who had a teacher who had a teacher. So that was there. The lineage energy was there. And then also decades of practice. She sat in a studio and practiced hours and hours and hours a day. She practiced to the point that she became the technique. And when she became the technique, she was free of it. So like oftentimes there's an idea in tea that like I get there without discipline. Right? We want to take the spiritual heights of the of the um the spiritual heights of the practice and like and where there's no where there's complete freedom and not realize that the people that got to those heights did so with lots of hard work right but the, the that's the modern because most spiritual traditions including zen have been sold to people instead of people having to sacrifice and go find a teacher in the mountains and give up their you know whatever their comfort in order to learn that practice now the practice is brought door to door and sold to them in the form of books or um, you know other media blogs or youtube channels or whatever that are looking for attention and so in order to get more attention the modern kind of spiritual philosophy is i'm going to have spiritual attainment without any sacrifice but there's no spiritual saint in any tradition or lineage or teacher that that you know, whose story is that? There's nobody who it came easy for. It's always hard work for everything, right? We, we, tend, to, we tend to overlook the hard work. Even when we see like a master musician, we're like, we go right to like, oh, she was born that way. She's just <laughs> super talented, right? And like, she's, she just looks at you like, you're nuts. <laughs> like, yeah, there was some talent, but I've worked so hard so many hours so many days so many years of so much hard work you have no idea right and so we just tend to think that it's super easy for the great musician that they just like you know play all day and then randomly show up somewhere and you know the great ones aren't like that they're practicing all the time and they've practiced for decades to get to that place where they are and so there's a lot of hard work that goes into that ability to show up and be on stage and be free and just play the music right uh, one of the things my teacher says that I love the most, my Gongfu teacher, Master Lin, he always says, which means for the sake of this cup of tea, I've spent 50 years of my life. Mm -hmm. Right? So it didn't take him five minutes to make that cup of tea. It took 50 years of lots of practice and study and travel and like discomfort and, you know, sacrifice. And so the idea that I'm going to attain things spiritually without sacrifice is foolish. It's not, it's not true. Right, the idea that you can go right to the freedom and and just forget all the things, forget learning or forget form, just go um, play and be free, and that that leads to some kind of attainment is not true. And yet, the master will look like a playful child. The master is an innocent child, right? The word for sage in Chinese is literally a dancing child. The character is a dancing child. But there's a difference between the innocence and freedom of the master than from the than a child. Obviously, it's aware is awake uh, it's not unconscious it's not ignorant it's gone the full gamut it's gone all the way around so that you can't get to that without training and so this this aimlessness and aim this form and freedom like cultivating form but then abandoning it and being fully in the moment is very delicate it's a very delicate balance and you go one way or the other and you get either too strict and tight and or you go too loose 
And so you got to, you know, as you're learning for years or decades or however long it takes you, you got to just constantly be like readjusting that and balancing that and tuning it. It's not something that's fixed in one day. You have to tune it. Sometimes you have to tighten up and sometimes you have to loosen up. And that's the, that's the same with practice, with meditation practice, with a practice with those who are trying to cultivate themselves or practice Zen. Same thing. Sometimes you have to t- tighten, sometimes you have to loosen up and you have to constantly be aware of, of you have to be skilled at watching. Same with your tea practice. Sometimes you got to dig in and practice, and there has to be form, and and you got to be able to let go of that form fully too, right? You got to you got to be able to be in the moment. And every tea ceremony is different; they aren't formulas, and you can lose the tea if you're caught in the form. Then you lose the tea, mm-hmm. right? So you got to be fully there and fully present onto this tea and this ceremony. But at the same time, that's a higher state, and to get to there, you got to practice, and you got to there's got to be a lot of form, and there's got to be a lot of you know, so you can go too far in either direction, right? It's it's a Western way to go too far to the chaos. And you know, Zen also was born and and bred in cultures that are a lot more disciplined than ours and a lot less individualistic. So that was one of the culture clashes when Zen first came to the United States. You know, when you had like Zen masters in California, right in the heart of hippiedom. And like then hippies are coming to the Zen Zendo and saying, Master, I, I can't do this vegetarian thing. I, I just want to have a burger. And his answer was like, yes, Zen of eating burgers. Or like, I can't come to the meditation this Friday. I have, I'm, there's a free concert in the park. I have to go. Yes, Zen of rock and roll concert. <laughs> right? But he's not eating burgers and he's not going to a rock and roll concert. He's going to be meditating and eating the simple vegetarian food. Right? So... um but but what he's saying is that, you know, when one finds oneself in the heart of a rock concert, then Zen of rock concert. When one finds oneself eating a burger, then Zen of eating a burger, right? That the the Zen is the how, not the what. And that you're that, that person is mistaking the form for the essence. They're thinking Zen is is sitting around in monasteries and eating vegetarian food and meditating and wearing certain clothes and talking in certain ways and chanting and and believing in certain philosophy, and they're missing the essence of Zen, which is the how, not the what. It's the container, not the content. So it can be practiced, it can be lived and expressed in a rock concert just as well as it can in a Zendo, and it can be expressed as well eating a burger as it can eating vegetarian food, right? So, but the the hippie mistakes that to think that like Zen is do whatever you want, which it is, <laughs> but. But in order to do whatever you want, you have to first know what you want. Hmm. The endless paradox. You have to know what you have to know what you want in order to do only what you want, right? And so that person's mis- that person thinks that Zen is a particular set of activities and way of dressing, and they're just caught in the form. Do you see? And what the teacher is saying is that the essence has nothing to do with the form; it can be expressed in any form. And you're stuck, right? You want. Uh, a certain form. Zen teachers love to poke holes in in attachment to form, right? You think that uh, uh, a Zen teacher should behave in a particular way, right? And then, and then they show up and they will they will crash that. They will wreck that. I don't want to be um, pigeonholed into some kind of stereotype of what you think a spiritual teacher should be. I'm not a holy man, and I'm not trying to be. I'm just a human, and through my body flows all of the beauty and waste 
both physically and mentally and spiritually that flows through your body. And uh, so I'm not trying to be apart or separate or different. And by trying to make me into that, you're actually subverting my wishes. By trying to put me on a pedestal above you, you're subverting my wishes and you're creating dynamics that are not conducive to my practice or your practice. Right? Because no matter what kind of good intentions there are, if I stand between you and the light, I cast shadows on you. And those shadows then bounce back up and affect me and I create that will create shadows in my own dynamic. So that you know that that's just one example of all the ways that we um, we get twisted up. But this this is a big huge topic and and the, in general the relationship between form and formless is very delicate. And if you ask me on an absolute level, always formless, freedom. Mm. Yes, be free, right? But you see. You have me, Wuda. I have never learned to play the guitar. And I go on stage and I'm like, yeah, it's all just about freedom, man. It's just, that's all it is, is just freedom, man. You just like let go and play. And I start doing things with the guitar. And then to all of our great fortune in this, in this, uh, fairy tale, uh, Derek Trucks comes on stage next to me and he lets go. He lets go into complete freedom, right? My freedom is going to sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like, <laughs> his freedom is going to take us all out of our bodies mm. to some kind of transcendent space, right? So Why? Why is because dude's been spending hours and hours and hours every day practicing playing the guitar since he was nine years old. Because mm. he's got thousands of hours invested, a lot of hard work, tons and tons of hard work invested in playing scales, just playing form over and over and over again, going through form, going through scales, going through chords, progressions, moving his hands in certain ways. Learning to not and not just the, the practice of how to manipulate the guitar, also learning how to live and be a musician, how to not be nervous on stage, how to how to all the details of organizing a rock concert and getting there, how to set up mics and all the electronics that are involved in a guitar, uh, the life, the, the way that a musician looks at the world in order to draw poetic inspiration and write their songs both the music of their songs and the lyrics in a way that moves others. And so included in the mastery of any art is, is a, uh, a way of look, looking at the world and be a way of, a way of uh, living as a human in that world. So how to live a human life and how to see the world in which that life is lived. Those are included in the mastery of his music. So he's learned how to be a rock star. So how a rock star sees the world, how a rock star, um, lives a human life in that world where they draw their inspiration and poetry and their freedom even. And then couple that with lots of technical skill. Actually, technical skills, including like dexterity of his fingers and how they stretch and uh, everything from there to the understanding of electronics and amplifiers and all kinds of things. So if it was just as simple as like, you know, yeah, you just like sit down and brew the tea. 
<laughs> from your heart. That would be the same. Like, yeah, you just go on stage and you just like grab the guitar and you just like let it be free. It's just like, it's just all freedom, right? But what kind of noises are you going to make, what would Wuda make with the guitar? I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never taken any training in guitar, right? It's going to sound terrible, <laughs> right? And he, if he gets up and lets free, we're going to all like be moved to, you know, go listen to one of his concerts. Come on. Dude's incredible. Rips it. He's going to take us to a whole other place if we get into it, get into it, and like his freedom will take us to freedom, right? But that's because he has the skill to do so and the training. So this is the perfect example, right? And yet, he's if he's really going to take us somewhere, he's going to have to let go. If he's all technical and tight and worried about what he's doing, he, he, his music won't get us there, hmm. right? It's, he's got to he's got to. He's got to let go and get into the essence and soul of it. He's got to be free. So certainly, if you ask a Zen teacher, always the answer is going to be freedom. Like, yeah, show up, full freedom, full naturalness, full spontaneity. And without that spontaneity, it's never the true essence. However, as a, as a beginner, as a student, you can get into a real problematic space by misunderstanding such statements to mean that therefore training is unnecessary and form is unnecessary, and skill is unnecessary, and that you can just walk on a stage and grab a guitar and play it, which is far, far, far from the truth. Mm. Hmm. Thank you so much, Buddha, for sitting down with us again, and thank you for sharing your wisdom about Zen and tea. My pleasure. It's always great to have this forum to be able to express uh, some of the wisdom of a life of tea. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of Life of Tea. I hope you have enjoyed it and we very much look forward to meeting you in the next episode of Life of Tea as well. As mentioned in the beginning, we recommend listening to the first part of Zen and Tea as well. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please help us reach more people by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Your comments, likes, and shares will go a long way and are deeply appreciated. If you would like another way to support this project and our free tea center here in Miali, Taiwan, please sign up for our ad-free magazine that we publish every month. It covers all aspects of tea, from processing and brewing techniques, history, lore, spirituality, and community. It also comes with a tin of beautiful, sustainably produced tea. To subscribe, go to globalteahut.org. If you would like more information on linear topics such as brewing techniques, please feel free to check out our YouTube channel, also called Global Tea Hut. <laughs>